This morning, if you, uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 12 this morning. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. You have notes, or you can go to the YouVersion app. The scripture is going to be uh, on the screen this morning. I think in your notes, though, as I looked over the notes, it was my fault, but I, I think that the notes, uh, the scripture is, is a little bit off. I think I left out a couple of sentences or something like that. But rest assured, uh, if you want to, you know, soak it in, just close your eyes and listen as the word of God is uh, read and um, it'll sink in for sure. This morning, we're going to talk about an event in the life of a man named Japhath. Uh, Japhath was from the land of Gilead. And his father's, actual, his father's name was Gilead, but they were from the land of Gilead. And um, Japheth, the Bible says that his father had many, many sons, but that Japheth, out of all of uh, Gilead's sons, that Japheth was the only one who was the son of a prostitute. And so as Japheth grew, the Bible says that as he grew into adolescence, that his brothers did not take kindly to him because he was the only son that was born out of wedlock. He was the only son that was born of a prostitute. And so his brothers, the Bible says in, in chapter 11, that his brothers literally drove him out of town. They drove him uh, out into a wilderness land, into a desert place. And as Japheth is out in this desert place, he began to sharpen his warrior skills. The Bible says that he was a, a mighty warrior. He was a hunter, and he sharpened his skills as he was in this desert place. And as he was there, what he realized is that there were a lot of other men just like him that had been on the outskirts of their tribe or their town or their city. And they had also been driven into a desert place. And very much like David, you remember when he was out in the wilderness and he surrounded himself with mighty men of valor. The Bible says that Japheth did the same thing. He found a bunch of men that were drawn to him and they created a type of makeshift small army. And so Japheth, as he's in this um, wilderness, in this desert place, the people of Gilead come under attack by a pagan people called the Ammonites. The Ammonites come into Gilead and they start to, you know, just pillage the nation. They go to war with them. The Gileads understand that they are about to lose everything that they have hoped for. So they send messengers to Japheth, the very man that they had driven out of their land. And they send word to him and they say, Japheth, would you please come back? and make war against the Ammonites on our behalf. If you do this, if you deliver us from their hands, we will make you a ruler over the land. Please just come back and do this. And so Japheth, he says, if you'll make me ruler, I'll absolutely come back to my homeland that you kicked me out of. And so Japheth comes back to the homeland. He does exactly what he says he will do. He eradicates the, the Ammonite people. And in the process of doing this, as he has reestablished himself and his mighty men of valor that are there with him, there's another tribe of the people of Israel called the Ephraimites. And the people from the land of Ephraim, they were the kind of people that, have you ever just met like a bully? Somebody that is constantly contentious, they're always looking for a fight. You can never have a conversation without them being quarrelsome with you. That was the people from the land at least in this era, from the land of, of Ephraim. And so the people from Ephraim, they come at Japheth and they're upset with Japheth. And they say, listen, why when you went to war with the pagans, why didn't you call us in to make war with you? And the reality is, is that the Ephraimites, not only did they, they wanted the spoils of war, but they wanted the glory of war and victory that came along with it. But they felt like Japheth had robbed them of it. And so when we pick up in chapter 12 here, this is the context. This is the background. This is what's going on. They are coming to a moment of conflict. And the Bible picks up in chapter 12, verse 1, and it reads this. It says, the men of Ephraim were called to arms. And they crossed the Zephon and they said to Japheth, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, pause. This is clearly an overreaction, right? <laughs> 
If you are ever in a conversation with someone or you have an ought with somebody and their response is, I'm going to burn your house down, chances are two things. Number one, you need new friends. (laughs) Number two, they are clearly overreacting to the situation at hand. And that is exactly what's happening here. Their immaturity, their, uh, their, their instinct to fight, their bloodlust, it's all rising to the surface here in this moment. And the scripture goes on and says, and then Japheth said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and I crossed over against the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Japheth gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim. And the men of Gilead captured the fords of the Jordan River. Now, a ford along a river is just basically, you know, the Jordan River at at many parts is very, very wide where you have to have some type of craft to to go from one side to the other. But there are some parts of the Jordan River that are are super narrow and they're shallow enough where you can just kind of wade across there. This was the fords, the shallow area where people would go. And so basically what has happened is that the Gileads had captured this area where they knew the Ephraimites had to cross to go back home. So they've captured this area. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim came to cross and they said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, then the Gilead said to him, then say the word Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the people of Ephraim fell at the sword. Now, Father, this morning, we open the sacred text. And we open to um, some events that can be confusing, can be misunderstood, and all these different things. But my prayer this morning, Lord is that you will help scripture to come alive inside of our souls. I pray, Holy Spirit, um, we call you our comforter, we call you our helper, we call you our peace. Uh, But this morning, Lord, we call on you to be our teacher like Jesus promised you would be. And I ask you to teach your people the things that are beyond my capacity to teach them. Speak to our hearts on individual levels. We pray for your help this morning in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen. It is amazing what a slight variation can mean. It's amazing the difference in the slight variation of of a word can make so much difference. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was with a group of of friends and um, one of our friends was telling us that he was going to get a new hairstyle. And um, me, I haven't had a new hairstyle in probably 15 years. And so I was a little intrigued. I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe... Maybe I'll listen. Maybe I want a new hairstyle, you know? And so I was listening and he was describing the hairstyle. He's going to grow it out and he's going to cut it in certain ways and different things. And as I was thinking, I was listening, I was imagining myself with that haircut. And I was thinking, oh, that does not sound like something that would look good on me. Like, you know, I'm like, I'm going to leave that to you, buddy. And uh, as I listened to him talk, he's he's describing it and everything. And he says, yep, I'm going to get me a moulet. And I thought to myself and I said, Moulet. He said, he said, well, most people call it a mullet, but I call it a moulet. And, uh, and he did. He's got a moulet, and it looks amazing on him, but it looks amazing on him, not me. And I thought about that. I thought, I thought man, just the slightest variation in between certain words can make so much of a difference as we go through this life. These men, these Ephraimites, this is what they're against. They're against a people who are literally going to take their lives if they can't enunciate one word correctly. The word shibboleth. Everybody, you can say it, right? Everybody on three, one, two, three, shibboleth, right? Now, somebody next to you said sibboleth. Just let one of our security officers know and uh, they'll take care of that person. But the vast majority of us can say the word shibboleth. 
And the reality is, is that these men, because of their dialect, the people from the land of Gilead knew that the people from Ephraim could not say it in the way that they said it. And so in essence, this is what happened. The men of Gilead had taken the Jordan River and they had literally like drawn a line in the sand and they had looked at the people that were trying to cross and they said, if you don't say what I say, you can't have access to what I have access to. If you don't do what I do, you can't have access to what I have access to. If you are not like me, you can't pass by. I think it's so interesting, the lines in the sand that so many Christians have drawn through the years. This morning, I want to talk to you about some lines that we have drawn in the sand. Some, some lines desperately needed, some lines absolutely not needed. But before we get into this, I, want to, I just kind of want to make myself very clear. This morning, when we talk about different lines that we've drawn in the sand and access points, I want to be clear that I'm not going to be talking about any cultural issues today, okay? I'm not talking about politics or anything like that. So don't try to, you know, in your mind, take something I said and say, oh, he was really trying. No, I'm not. I'm not. I am purely talking about the Christian faith this morning. I'm talking about lines that do not need to be drawn, but I'm also talking about lines that desperately need to be drawn around the most precious elements of the Christian faith. And the reason is because in the day that we live, well, I'll say this, in, in, in years past, so much damage has been done in the body of Christ because there have been so many that have drawn lines in all the wrong places. But today we're facing a situation where people aren't just drawing lines in the wrong places, people aren't drawing lines at all. And it's leading us to a place that we desperately do not want to go. I promise you that. And so this morning, I wanna to talk to you for just a few minutes about some lines that we need to draw in the sand and about some lines that we do not need to draw in the sand when it comes to our Christian faith. I call these lines in the sand shibboleths. I think there are certain sh shibboleths, oh, need to watch it there, whoa. <laughs> Keep me sanctified, Lord Jesus, okay. Um, we need to talk about some shibboleths that we would interpret as lines in the sand. In your notes, if you're following along, the first thing I wanna to talk to you about is what I call silly shibboleths. Some of us have drawn lines in the sand based more along the lines of preference than doctrine. Now listen to me say this. There, I have very strong preferences. I have very, there are some things traditionally that are very close to my soul. The trouble is when I take something that is purely a personal preference and I elevate it to the place of core doctrine, I am in that moment in error and it has now become a silly shibboleth, right? And you know what I'm talking about. These are things, and we've probably all been there at one time or another, but the reality is, is that some of us stay there while others of us move on. You know what I'm talking about. There are things that we all have preferences over, right? Like how many songs that we should sing on a Sunday morning or what types of songs we should sing on a Sunday morning. Or when pastor stands in the pulpit, if he should wear a suit and tie or if pastor should wear skinny jeans, right? <laughs> Which I'd pay money for, okay? <laughs> These are personal preferences that if we're not careful, we can elevate to the wrong place. Whether or not we should be a church that allows people to bring in food and coffee is not a scriptural issue. How many songs we sing on a Sunday morning are not a part of our core doctrine of who we are as the body of Christ. 
These are all issues that, and, and listen to me say this, they may be very important issues to different individuals. And like I said, I've got some preferences that are deeply, deeply important to me. But I've got to make sure that I don't take my personal preferences and draw lines in the sand and say, look, if you don't say the things that I say about this issue, and if you don't do the things that I do regarding these things, then you can't be a part of what I'm a part of. We've got to be careful because even though, and listen to me, I don't want to take away from anyone's personal um, preferences or traditions. I don't want to disregard that. Please hear my heart in this. That is not the heart of what I'm saying. God has entitled us all to have our opinions about certain things. My point is that these opinions need to have their place. And their place is not the core of the doctrines of the Christian faith. Because I'm going to tell you this, if we're not careful and we allow these silly lines in the sand to be drawn at the wrong places, we may find ourselves in a place where instead of drawing people closer to Christ, we are actually pushing them further from Christ because we set lines at the wrong places. I remember uh, many, many years ago before uh, Joy and I went um, into full-time ministry, uh, we served at a local church and we, were, um, we volunteered at, in the youth ministry as uh, chaperones. And every Wednesday night, our ministry, we would bus in just dozens and dozens of kids from all across the city, just, just all across the city. It was an incredible opportunity because so many of these kids um, had little to no exposure to the gospel, little to no exposure to the church, to Christianity, to Jesus himself. There was, there was very little spiritual influence in their lives. And I remember one particular Wednesday, um, there was a young man, he had just gotten off the bus and he was walking down the hallway to go to the youth ministry. And as he was walking down the hallway, there was someone in that church that was at a very high level of leadership. And they were walking the other direction, the opposite direction. They were going to cross paths here soon. And as they're crossing paths, the man at the high level of leadership in the church as he passed by the boy, he grabbed the hat off the boy's head. He shoved it in his chest. And he said, we don't wear hats in the house of God, boy. And he kept moving. Now, clarification. What the man was trying to do was to honor the house of God. At least in his mind, that's what he was trying to do. In his mind, he was saying, we, this is not how we act in the house of God. The trouble is how he said it made it as if this was a core issue of the Christian faith. And the trouble is, is that this young boy who had little to no exposure to Jesus whatsoever had just seen a person carrying massive spiritual influence and the message that that man sent to that young boy was not that Jesus is hopeful for a relationship with you. The message he sent was that Jesus may be open for a relationship if you follow the rules. And in that moment, the probability that that boy was drawn closer to Jesus in that moment is little to none. The reality is, is that he was probably pushed a little bit farther away. And if we're not careful, I'm talking to all of us. If we're not careful, we can create these lines in the sand that have no place being there. And here's the trouble with it. So many of our lines that we've drawn in the sand about preferences, in our heart of hearts, the, the motive is I want to please the Lord, so I need to draw this line in the sand. I want to honor God. I want to honor the people of God. I want to honor the house of God. That is usually the motive when we are doing these things. But if we are not careful and we elevate these things, we have done just what the man in the Sanhedrin had told the Sanhedrin. He said, listen, we've got to be careful because if we attack the apostles, if we go after the disciples, in our minds, we may be thinking that we're helping God when we're actually hurting his cause. And so there are some lines in the sand that, especially way in decades past, that lines have been drawn in, in, in so many of the wrong places. Now, the equal opposite to silly shibboleths is what I call silent shibboleths. 
And this is the idea that there is a movement in Christian culture right now that basically has drawn no lines in the sand. There are no lines. There's nothing that is um, based out of conviction. There are no promises that are sacred. There is nothing that is precious as far as core doctrine and core values. And therefore, Christian culture in these pockets are indistinguishable between Christianity and those who are in the world, right? Which is odd because every time that God has human interaction with a people group, Part of his design is to create a people that are different than those who were in all other lands of all of the world. The Ten Commandments, there were many purposes of the Ten Commandments. Are you guys with me? Not sure who's tense and who's not. Everybody breathe. (gasps) Shibboleth. All right. The Ten Commandments were made for a lot of different reasons, but but listen to me. One One of the most distinct, God was trying to create a people that were unlike anything that anybody else had ever experienced. He was trying to create a distinction of people, so he drew certain lines in the sand. And so we have silly shibboleths, we have silent ones, but then this next level that I wanna talk to you about is what I call secondary shibboleths. Now, let let me explain what I mean by this because this is the part where I feel like most confusion could come in, okay, if I don't explain it well. These issues are important issues, but they are not primary issues. And it requires discernment to understand those things. These are not issues that we necessarily need to draw a line in the sand with, but we probably need to draw a dotted line in the sand. Does that make sense? They're important issues, but there are some things about these issues that are up for debate. Okay, so for instance, let me tell you, a, a core issue would be the rapture of the church, right? I believe the rapture of the church needs to be a core doctrine of the church scripturally. I'm not talking about that. In, the, the doctrine of the rapture of the church is not a secondary issue, okay? When the rapture of the church will happen is a secondary issue. Right? So, so whether you're a person that believes, well, Jesus is going to rescue us out of here before the tribulation, or if you believe that God is going to uh, send Christ at the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, I understand. But the, reality, the reason that we call it secondary issues is because out of all three of these options, you can build a biblical case for all three of these options. It is scripturally debatable. You can build a case with scripture on this, this, and this. The doctrine of the rapture is one of those things that is sacred, but how it is going to unfold should not be sacred to us, if that makes sense. It needs to be a secondary shibboleth. This is the same with with the doctrine of communion or the Lord's table. When we receive the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a primary issue, but how we receive the Lord's Supper needs to be one of those things that we have a dotted line. It is a secondary issue. So for instance, um, you know, here at our church, we have the, um, the little packets that you need a toolbox to kind of get into and to, to be able to get into it and take communion. That's how we receive communion here at our church. But there are other Christians all around the world who love Jesus emphatically, and they receive communion with a common cup where they pass the cup around even during Corona season, you know? They pass the cup. There are those that uh, will take the bread and dip in the cup and then eat. There are those that will receive the bread of communion themselves. And then there are those where they will have a priest come and lay the bread on their tongue. The doctrine of communion, the Lord's table, is sacred. But how communion is done, there are ways that you can build a case on that and discuss this. That's what makes it a secondary issue. These are issues that are important, okay? They are very, very important. But they are not issues that we lose fellowship over, and they are not issues that we lose our salvation over, okay? So we have to learn to be a people, which I know I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the choir right here, okay? I know this. But we have to continue to be a people who press into these things with discernment and understanding and not lose fellowship, learning to agree to disagree over certain issues. Now, all of that leads us 
to what I would consider the most important shibboleth out of everything we're going to talk about. It's what I would call significant shibboleths. These are things that do not need dotted lines. They need fat, thick, blocky lines that run miles and miles. These need to be the biggest, thickest lines that we can create because there are some issues in the Christian faith that are never negotiable. There's no variance. There's no gray area. There's no discussion about certain things within the Christian faith. These are what we call significant shibboleths, okay? Now, before we get to the significant lines that need to be drawn in the sand, I want to I talk to you about a current crisis that is brewing in our land and, for that matter, in all of Western culture. Now, I know that I can get on the Google and I can find statistics that will support whichever position I take on any topic at hand. I know that I can find evidence to support anything I want it to support. I know that to be true. But there are certain organizations that operate with such integrity and they operate in such a way that they are well-trusted organizations who aren't going to survey like four people and give you statistics based off of that. Lifeway Research is one of those organizations. And last year they did a project in 2020, it was called the State of Theology Survey. And basically, they had gone to not only evangelical Christians, but they had gone to people who were beyond the Christian faith, just um, regular Americans. And they did this super extensive survey, and they, um, they collected all this data and all this information, and then they kind of dissected it, and they said, this is what America is saying, and this is what Christians or, or evangelical Christians are saying. And at the end of the survey, I, I read through the survey and it was, it was long. It's like 70-something pages and you can go through and, and read all this stuff. And the, the basic place that we come to at the end of the survey is simply this. That Christian America does not believe the way that she used to believe. Christian America is not speaking the same way that she used to speak. And part of the trouble with it is this, is that those big, thick, blocky black lines that we need to draw lines in the sand in are being dusted away. And very few lines are being drawn in places they need to be drawn in this day. Now, I don't wanna, I don't wanna deceive. There were, there, were, um, there were a lot of positives that came out of this study. Okay, so for instance, I'll read a couple of things um, to you. When it comes to evangelical Christians, only 17% of evangelical Christians agreed with this statement that modern science disproves the Bible. Only 17% of evangelicals believe that, which we are evangelicals, okay? 17%, that is a very positive thing. That means 83% of people believe that, that the Bible transcends science, right? That's a good place to be for our culture. 84% of those who profess to be evangelical Christians agree with this statement, that God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus. That's good. That's a good place to be, okay? I don't want to paint the church out like we are in this, you know, incredible downward spiral and we are going to implode. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay. Nothing is going to take the church out, but there are eras throughout Christian history where the church is weaker and then other points where the church is stronger. And we want to be to a place in this era where our things are strong. So I don't want to paint a horrible picture. The church of today is doing so much good for missions, for social justice, for issues that really matter today. The church is doing so much with care and compassion and, and taking care of very real issues that need to happen. There are a lot of positives about what the church in America and Western culture is doing right now. But let me say that there are also some negatives that we must pay attention to. These are not the type of negatives that we say, ah, they'll come around. These are the types of negatives that we need to bring to the table and we need to talk about, 
right? So for instance, in your notes, I think the statistic may be wrong in your notes, so I changed it. That was my fault. But out of all evangelicals that were surveyed, 30%, understand this, one-third of all of the evangelical Christians that were surveyed agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Listen, I think in your notes it says 54%. That's because out of everybody surveyed, Christian and non-Christian alike, 54% said, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not God. Now listen to me. By default, if you do not embrace the truth that Jesus was God, you are not a evangelical Christian. It, like that is literally the definition of what a Christian is. They believe that Jesus was God. 42% of evangelical Christians, this is not the whole scope, but 42% of evangelical Christians agree with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. All of this information, the good, the bad, the ugly, you put it together, and what you come to realize is that there is deep confusion that's going on in the body of Christ. There's a, a website I referenced that kind of digested all this information and they gave conclusive statements about you know, their opinion of, of the study as a whole and everything. And this is one uh, thing that one of the writers wrote. They said evangelicals, while exhibiting some hopeful movement in the direction of biblical fidelity, also seem to be influenced by the culture's uncertainty about what truth is, who Jesus is, and how sinners are saved. In essence, this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, in some ways it's good. We've got a lot of people that say they believe what the Bible says. But the sad part is, is they don't know what the Bible says. They believe and they embrace. They say, yes, I embrace God's word. But they don't believe specific truths that God's word speaks of. And it's a, it's a radical moment when we truly get to a place. And listen to me, I know it's hard to grasp for us because we are a part of, of a Bible-believing, uh, conservative, you know, uh, Christian-wise, we are, we are a conservative-believing group of people. It's difficult for us to get our minds around something like this. But let me tell you, part of the reason that I'm talking about this is not just for me and it's not just for you as an adult. It's for your children and your grandchildren and their children because they are being raised in a culture where spiritual osmosis isn't just going to happen the way that it happened for me and you. We were around Christianity, even in schools and different things, there was a reverence and there was a fear for the things of God. And we would go to church and, and different things. So much of our social life, we kind of, many of us, we just kind of through osmosis learned about the things of God and we came to a place of saving knowledge in Christ. I'm telling you today, that is not going to happen in the lives of our children. It's not gonna be through spiritual osmosis that they are going to come to the right place with the Lord. We'll talk about that in a minute. What we need to answer is this, how did we get to where we are? And the truth is, I believe, is that there are a number of things that have happened to the church in, in different areas that we can point to and say, this is why we have gotten to where we are. The number one thing by far is, is a, a, a term that we call syncretism. And syncretism is basically this. It means that the Christian faith has not solely remained the Christian faith, but she has opened up and synchronized with other world philosophies, religious philosophies, other ways of thinking. And now Christianity, instead of being what she was intended to be, she is a combination of a lot of other things. And so in American culture, this is why you have 42% of Christians say that God accepts the worship of every religion that exists. That, by definition, that is syncretism. That is the way where Christianity has taken on other aspects aside from what it should be. False teaching is a huge thing that has invaded Western culture. And let me just tell you this, um, when, when Paul, when Peter talk about the, the wolves that come in sheep's clothing, he wasn't just talking to the people that lived in that day. 
He was talking to us throughout all time. And I'm telling you throughout Western culture, there's been a lot of false teaching, but as much as false teaching, there's been a lot of bad teaching. And, and bad teaching, the only difference between bad teaching and false teaching is that bad teaching, the people teaching have a right motive, they have a right heart, they're just teaching the wrong things, right? And so there are all, there's like this stew of, of issues that have led us to the place that we are today. I remember um, uh, a few years ago, I was listening to um, a, a world-renowned pastor who I honor him. I have no issue with him. I bless him. I think he is an amazing man of God. I hope to be next to him in our houses in heaven, okay? But a few years ago, I was listening to a podcast with this guy. And God has blessed their church. There's so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been saved through um, their ministry. Just an incredible move of God. But he started talking about a series that he had done at his church on the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And as he was talking, he, was, he, he took on this, he was so excited, he was so proud when he made the statement. He said, I was able to like 15, 16, 17 week series, like 17 different teachings. He said, I was able to stand in the pulpit and I was able to explain the doctrines of the Christian faith without using words like sanctification and regeneration and baptism and all these different phrases. Now, pause for a second. I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to make the Christian faith digestible for anybody and everybody who can come. And I applaud him for that. But I'm telling you, a movement like that, that tries to lessen the gravity of these core doctrines, and make them so attainable that they're not uh, appealing to the appetite on a spiritual level. It has led us to not such a great place in the Christian community. It is a desire for cultural acceptance. And that has led us to a slippery slope where some really poor teaching has come out of some major influencers in the church world and in Christian America. So the result is simply this that today Christian America is speaking differently than she's ever spoken in our nation before. And Christian America is believing differently than she's ever believed before. You remember the Ephraimites. For whatever reason, they were a part of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were a part of the core group. They believed in the monotheistic God, Jehovah God. They embraced this. They embraced this. Why was their dialect different from those that they had spent so many years with in their life? And the reason is this. When we dig a little bit, what we can find is that the people from Ephraim had separated themselves from the other 11 tribes of Israel. They had separated themselves far enough away and long enough that the very speech from their lips had changed what they say. And I'm telling you today that in Christian America, we've got to be careful that we don't move far enough away from core doctrines and long enough away from the essence and the essentials of our Christian faith that we forget how to speak the language of God that we stop believing what we have always been called to believe. Literally, it is the difference between shib and sib. Shib and sib. But listen to me say this, that slight variation made all the difference in the world. And it ended the life of 42,000 people in a day. And I'm telling you this, the slightest variation from the core of what we should believe, the lines that need to be drawn, drawn in the sand, the slightest variation away from these things could lead us to a place that we do not want to go. A few years ago, I was reading a book by at that time, he was a pastor. He's not anymore, but um, a world-renowned guy and um, just an incredible teacher. I mean, just so insightful. But in this particular portion of a book, he asked a question. He made a statement. He said, as he was talking about the Christian faith and the doctrines, he said, so what if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin? 
does that make a difference to you and your faith today? That's what he was saying. He said, does it make a difference? So what if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin? So what does it matter to you today? It, and this was his statement. It doesn't make a difference at all. To which I politely threw my book across the room and I said, no, it makes all the difference in the world. Because if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then he didn't fulfill the messianic prophecy that he would be born of a virgin. Listen to me. And this is all the guy was trying to do. This is all he was trying to do. Do I believe that he doesn't? I don't know what he believes about the virgin birth, but this is what he was trying to do. He was trying to push back on some core doctrines for whatever reason. And let me tell you this. He pushed back far enough and he pushed back long enough that I don't even know that he would classify himself as a Christian today. Do you, am I making sense? It's this whole idea. You remember how pastor so often uses the, the illustration about the airliner who was set out for a destination on the other side of the world. But for whatever reason, the pilot got one degree off course. And that slight degree off course led them to a place they did not want to go. All I'm simply saying is this. There are some lines today that the body of Christ must draw in the sand. They must be immovable lines. Listen to me. Not to be, not, not to be um, cantankerous and not to be intolerant, not to be hostile, not to be mean-spirited, but to be faithful to be committed to the truths that have been passed down from our Lord himself. And so today, I just want to really quickly, I know we're, we're thin on time, really quickly, I just want to run through with you just a few things that I believe need to be lines in the sand for the church today, okay? These, this is not an exhaustive list. There are things that probably need to be added to this list that I just didn't, I wasn't going to go there. But let me just, I want to go over with you five things that I believe should be shibboleths for us today in the body of Christ. The first one is this, is that I believe that scripture should be a shibboleth for us. I believe that we need to be a people who believe based on the text itself that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It has been, it has been created without error it has been created without fail, and it is the authoritative word of God. Now, listen to me say this. I know for, for many of us in this room, you're like, well, that's a no-brainer. But let me just tell you, in the greater levels of Christianity, that is not a no-brainer. I have been to Christian universities where I can't get professors to, to say with their mouth that the word of God is inerrant. I can't get professors at Christian universities who are going to be teaching our babies the ways of the Lord. Scripture needs to be a shibboleth for us. And the fact that the scripture comes to comfort us in times of need, that the scripture comes to impart courage to us when we are discouraged, but also that the scripture comes to teach us where we are falling, where we are failing. This is what Paul said to Timothy. He said, the word of God is given to you so you will know how to live and how not to live. And so we need to embrace the word. Listen, I was listening to a guy the other day telling way too many stories right now. I was listening to a guy the other day. I was listening to a sermon and he had literally taken a portion of text and focused on the top portion and totally disregarded the bottom portion, which would have contradicted completely the teaching that he was trying to say. And this is what he said in the midst of it. He said, you never need to listen to a sermon that in any way makes you feel bad. Listen, my heart, I never want people to leave feeling bad. I promise you that, that is never a goal. I don't have like a checklist and I'm like, okay, anointing, prayer, make sure you make guilt come into the room. You know, I don't have a checklist. The last thing that I want is for anybody to leave a sermon feeling shame. But this is what I'm gonna say. If we are intent on teaching the words of our Lord, then, then that is a work of the spirit where people are gonna feel uncomfortable sometimes. And that's okay because it's the work of the spirit. And this man stood in the pulpit and this is what he said. He said, you should never listen to 
a message or interpret scripture in such a way where it makes you feel bad on any level. And he said this. He said, if you ever hear anything that makes you sin conscious, you need to walk away. Listen to me. Listen, if I said his name right now, you'd know who I'm talking about. Do you understand the gravity of what I'm saying here? Listen, and I'm not belligerent, but I'm telling you this, I've drawn a line in the sand over what I say about scripture and how I declare the scripture. I do this because for thousands of years, people have given their lives and limb to make sure that the word of God is preserved for us. I remember reading about a guy named John Huss, one of the great reformers, so committed to the word of God that he would take God's word and when the Pope would issue uh, edicts that were, that were contrary to the word of God, that he would, not, not, in a, not out of anger or anything like that, but he would stand and he would say, no, that is not what the word of God says. And he did it so often and so consistently that finally he was called in, they brought him into the chambers at the time, the different monks, they would have these, these certain haircuts, not a moulet, but it was a haircut called, <laughs> it, was, it was a haircut called a tonsure, and it was like, it looks like a little halo that's been set right here. They bring him into the chamber. They shave his head of that privileged haircut. They furthermore take paper shreds, and they create a paper crown, and they draw little demons on the crowd that are dancing, and they put it on his head. And they march him out to a pile of wood. And before they set him on fire, they set his literary works on fire. So that as he passed by, he could see his legacy going up in smoke. They hated this man so much that after he was burnt to ashes, they went and got shovels and they dug the earth out of the ground where his ashes remain and they threw it in a lake because they didn't want anyone to ever remember that the man existed. Our fathers and our mothers have given so much to ensure that we have what we have in scripture. Lest we not say about God's word what God says about God's word. So I emphatically believe that there should be a line drawn in the sand over scripture. Number two, I think there should be a line drawn in the sand when we, when we talk about who God is, that he is the one true God, that he is Jehovah God, that he manifests himself as one being, but manifests himself as three persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I think we got to draw in the line, uh, a line in the sand where we understand that God is all sovereign, all knowing, all powerful. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows these things. And listen to me say this, what we say about God matters. It matters that your children and your grandchildren know that Jesus is God. That matters. The third thing I think we got to draw in the line of sand is over who Jesus is. We, it, we've got to be reminded that Jesus fulfilled all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. That indeed he was born of a virgin. That indeed he did live a sinless life. And that he went to the cross and shed his blood for the remission and the forgiveness of our sins. And whomsoever will come can receive salvation, not just because he died, but because three days later he rose again to life in bodily form. Listen to me. That matters that we believe these things about Jesus. Jesus, as a matter of fact, he, would what I, he is what I would call, when it comes to salvation, the only shibboleth that is. Jesus, listen, uh, this is what uh, Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. Peter would echo this and say that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus, you want to talk about shibboleth. Jesus is the one that says, look, you want access to the Father? You want access to eternal life? You want access to heaven? There's no way. Except through me. 
We just finished a Wednesday series on the I am statements through the book of John that Jesus makes. And, and I've read the book of John a thousand times, but I was so amazed at how many times when Jesus talks about himself, he is so exclusive when it comes to salvation that he doesn't say, listen, I'm a door. I'm a door to the father. No, he says, I'm the door to the father. He doesn't say, I'm a way, a truth, a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It matters that we believe that our works cannot take us to heaven. It matters that we embrace that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Number four, it matters what we say about the Holy Spirit. We must remember that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinitarian God. He is not God Jr. He is not an afterthought that does the bidding work of God. He is God. His work is to regenerate the soul unto salvation. His work is to baptize us in himself. His work is to give us fruit of the Spirit and his work is to give us gifts of the Spirit. It matters what we believe, and listen to me, it matters what we teach our children about who Holy Spirit is. And then fifth and finally, I'll say this, it matters what we say about salvation. It matters that we understand that humanity was created in perfection and that sin instituted brokenness into the world system. And we continue to have sin that courses through our veins. And the only cure for that sin is the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. It is important, listen, it is important that we embrace the fact that there will be a resurrection. There will be a resurrection, and that resurrection will lead one of two places. It will lead to a very real place called heaven, or it will lead to a very real place called hell. And I'm not trying to be insensitive when I say this, but we need to be a people that remember and keep eternity ever before us because it matters. It emphatically matters. This is not to be difficult. It is not to be mean. It is not to be intolerant. It is to be like A.W. Tozer who said this. He said, we need to return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the word of God. And that's the catch. These lines must be drawn in the sand. But how we draw those lines matters. Listen, our language is love. Our accent is kindness. We've got to remember that in the same way that the Gileadites, they, they showed us what to do. They said, you need to draw lines in the sand. You need to stand for what you believe. You need to make a stand on some things. As much as they told us what to do, they also told us how not to do it by killing people, right? And I think it's so important for us to remember that nothing for kingdom's sake is going to be accomplished through anger, through violent language, through talk, through dishonor, through discouragement, nothing is gonna be gained. It all must be birthed from a motive of love. That because we love the Father, these things matter. And because we love you, things matter, right? I'm reminded of what Paul said to Ephesians 5, and I'm, I'm closing here. Ephesians 5. He says, we won't be tossed and blown by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Listen to what he says. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way to be more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. I say it again. Our children and our children's children's children will not receive these understandings through osmosis in our culture anymore. A few years ago, my, my oldest daughter, who's 19 now, can you believe, she's about to be 20, can you believe? I don't look old enough to have a kid who's almost 20. I don't, thank you for laughing. Uh, um, 
filled with the love. <laughs> but when she was in sixth or seventh grade, we go to a very, we live in a, you know, kind of, I would think uh, there are a lot of believers where we live in, in our area. And very good and healthy school. And I remember one time she was coming home from school and she told me about um, her, I was asking her about uh, literature and, you know, her English courses and different things. And she said, yeah, uh, our teacher told us, it was the beginning of the year, our teacher told us that we were going to focus on um, nonfiction work. So we were going to study like documentaries and different things like that. She said, yeah, we're not going to um, pay attention to things that are fiction, like the Odyssey, the Bible, da da da, and started doing this. I said, <laughs> I said, baby, what did you just say? She said, what part? She thought she was in trouble. I said, no, not what did you say, what did the teacher say? And she said, well, we, we're not going to learn things like fiction, like this, this, and that, and the Bible. I said, okay. So I had to talk with my daughter, and I immediately got on the phone with the principal. And I said this, I said, listen to me. I don't care if you don't teach my child the Bible. I don't even care if you believe the, what the Bible says. But you cannot go against what I teach my children about the Bible. Listen, that is, that is not only anti-Christian, that's anti-American, right? There is a freedom of religion, and what you have just done, your teacher has painted me into a corner by calling the most sacred text, sacred text that I hold dear fiction, a work of fiction. And now I have to explain to my child, listen to me, the culture has changed. The culture is not what it once was. And listen to me, we've got to teach our children how to speak with the right accent. We've got to teach them the ways of the world, or the ways of the Lord, because listen to me say this, and again, I'm closing really quickly. Not only did the apostles talk about wolves that would come, and when wolves come, they come to deceive the flock of God, right? But they also talked about the world system that we were up against. And if the wolves come to deceive, the world just comes to destroy and dismantle. And so we are, we are up against a wall with these two regards, not only within the church as, as a global entity, that there are always going to be wolves that are trying to get in, but we are up against a world system that literally carries the spirit of Antichrist. And therefore, it is going to be anti-Christian the further that we go along. And so we have to be a people that are, are drawing the right lines and we're communicating in love and we are teaching our children and our grands all these, the ways of the Lord. Because I'm going to tell you this, as much as the White House matters, spiritual formation does not begin in the White House. Listen to me. It matters, but it doesn't begin in the White House. It begins in this house. And it begins in this house. It begins, listen. I feel like I'm communicating in a very aggressive way. I'm so sorry. That is not the intent of my heart. It, it burns in me. Andy Stanley once said, that your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Can you imagine that? That all the good that you've done for the kingdom pales in comparison to the children you've raised for the kingdom. That is the way of the Lord. And this stuff matters. Some of it matters so much, it comes down to the essence of eternal life and eternal death for some. It matters that much. And listen to me, as, as many times in the past year and a half or whatever that I've sat and I've, I've held, you know, one of my 47 children, um, <laughs> as many times as I have sat and held them and I have just prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As many times as I have prayed that, I still find my strength in the reality that in God's sovereign plan that he chose me and my children to live for such a time as this. 
And if he called us to live in such a time as this, there's a reason he called us to live for such a time as this, that they may be the greatest contribution to the kingdom that we have ever contributed and for God to receive glory for, from it. Amen. Amen.